Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. And I got to tell you something, since things have been so crazy in the last couple of weeks, I thought about maybe seeing if I could help lessen some of the anxiety around something that's very important for all of us to do, and that is our vaccines. And you've heard so much about them, but we also know that there's just so much confusion and, and misinformation out there. And literally so much pushback in some areas that's so unwarranted and so unnecessary. I thought maybe I'd like to see if I can get some of the questions answered and get some truth out there right now, especially with others, especially people in my category who are trying our best to get our vaccines as quickly as we can. I want people to know that they can reach out. This is safe. And this is something that we should all be considering or not just considering we should all do because, uh, you know, as, as it looks right now or stands right now, I don't see an end to this COVID-19 pandemic anytime soon. And I don't necessarily see an end to what might be in the future coming down the pike, but this may be, you know, um, actually the foreteller of, uh, and I think if we don't get excited about taking a vaccine right now, next year, who knows what may be coming down the pike. So let's just see if we can get some of our answers, questions, our questions answered. And our guest today is a pediatric, nephrologist at the University of North Carolina and the Vice Chair of Diversity and Inclusion at the University of North Carolina's Department of Medicine. She joined a COVID-19 vaccine clinical trial this fall and came on the show today to address the barriers and the community distrust surrounding the COVID-19 vaccine, as well as to answer some questions about the vaccine. Dr. Keisha Gibson, thank you so much for being on, on today's Free Thinking with Montel show. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to be here. Absolutely. And, you know, I, 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 there is a lot of just misinformation that's out there right now when it comes to the COVID-19 you know, vaccine. Let's see if we can delve in a little bit and see if we can, you know, answer some questions and give people some hope and some information that will lead them down the pipe or down the pike of going in and trying to find a vaccine. Absolutely. Let's do it. <laughs> Well, can you talk a little bit about why there is so much distrust surrounding this vaccine, COVID-19, especially in the communities of color? Yeah, so this is such an important question, Montel. I you know, will tell you that some of the mistrust that we're seeing in the community is not really just unique to the COVID vaccine itself. Um, I think that we have to be mindful that there have been many um, reasons why there um, there's distrust from communities of color in particular when, um, as it pertains to the medical um, community. Um, and it's important for us to really be bold and to be transparent about addressing where it comes from. Um, I, we should be bold and transparent and talk about it because it just, without us discussing things like, you know, some of the original practices in this country when it came to medicine involve kidnapping African-Americans off the streets, literally taking them into cavernous basements of multiple hospitals around the country, though I know a few seem to stand out, but we know that this happened all over the United States, San Francisco, Maryland, New York, and they weren't just rumors where there were people who were body snatchers in some way that were going out and grabbing low-income people and taking them in and actually performed surgeries on people that were unnecessary. And then there's the whole Tuskegee 
project that took place, but there were other projects like the Tuskegee Project that took place where they were testing things on people of color. Is that not right? No, you're exactly right. And, you know, and some of this was sanctioned by the people that are there to protect us. It was sanctioned by the government. The Tuskegee experiment was um, an experiment that was sanctioned by our Department of Health and Human Services. Um, so it allowed these men to go untreated for a disease that not only impacted their health, but also the health of their families, their wives, their children. Um, in North Carolina, in particular, um, the story of eugenics, where a lot of um, African-American um, women and girls as young as 13 and 14 were permanently sterilized um, because, of, because of very biased um, practices. So it's important that we remember this history and also understand that you know, our communities have short memories. We remember these things. We still have people in our family that lived through that experience. And so you take that and then you also layer upon that the, um, the angst behind this vaccine for a disease that a year ago the general population had never heard about. None of us heard about, you know, none of us knew about COVID-19. Um, now I'll tell you in medicine, you know, physicians um, have he heard about coronaviruses in general for decades. It is something that causes the common cold. But now we have this new virus that's out there, brand new, a year ago, nobody was talking about it. And now it's impacted our lives in such detrimental, such enormous ways that none of us could fathom. And out of the blue, it feels all of a sudden we have a vaccine and we have to trust as a general community that it's safe and that it works. And so you take all of that and layer it together. Um, you, you have this sort of compounded um, explanation for why there's so much distrust around, um, around the vaccine. And especially when you look at a virus, like you just said, that no one knew anything about two years ago, then all of a sudden it appears to disproportionately affect people of color. I'll tell you a very crazy story, Dr. Gibson. Oh, this is, let me think. I'm not, this is 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. Matter of fact, I'm going to be honest with you, this was about 27 years ago. I wrote a screenplay um, that was about a group of scientists, uh, some of which were young interns under the former Nazi regime, who had developed a virus specifically that attacked people based on the amount of melanin in their skin. And there was a group of these people trying to release this virus. And the virus was then released. And of course, my screenplay, you know, ended up finding it, destroying it, getting rid of it, killing all the people that were involved in it. Of course, the screenplay never got made, though there was a similar type of screenplay released that turned into a Mission Impossible movie um, that also dealt with, again, a virus that was designed to attack people based on the amount of melanin in their skin. And, you know, I know... You know, back in the um, early, late 70s, early 80s, there were all the rumors about, you know, things being released through fast food in the African-American community. I don't know if you remember some of that craziness, uh, why we shouldn't eat at certain restaurants because the food was designed to actually poison people of color. And that's been out there with this bad taste in people of color's mouths for 30 years. Now, all of a sudden, 
you have a virus that literally seems to discriminate. Um, is there any question why people are a little concerned? No, no, there's no question at all. And, you know, the reality is, it's not that this virus created the disparities that we're seeing. These disparities were already there. Um, and all COVID-19 did was basically pull the curtain back to show where all of our gaps are, where all of our problems are, where um, how when we look at the impact of things like structural racism in this country and how it impacts people's ability to access care, um, to you know, have a safety net, you know, do you have savings that will allow you to sustain your family when all the jobs are closing because we're trying to shut down this pandemic. Um, one of the things that I've been having a lot of conversations um, about with colleagues and others is, you know, the, the digital divide that we see in this country and, you know, all the areas that don't have access to broadband. Why in the world in this country is it not looked upon as a standard utility like we do water and electricity? But clearly you can easily see how not having access to, you know, what for a lot of us is a very basic thing shuts you out from, you um, from resources and you know how do you how do you apply for unemployment if you don't have access to the internet? Um, there's there's so much that was already here. Um, there were lots of problems and lots of things that were driving disparities. It's just that COVID nineteen shined a light on it um, and made it impossible to ignore. Gotcha. So understanding why there is some skepticism and there is concern. Now let's talk about why it's so important that people, I don't just want to say get over it, but understand they need to be vaccinated. Yeah, and this is such a delicate conversation. You know, I and and it crosses it crosses all demographics. Um, is is very loud in the in our um, sort of our communities of color um, because of the history and a lot of the things that have happened um, to our community. Um, but it crosses all demographics. Um, I've talked to family and friends who are highly educated, you know, friends that have um, really been very attuned with things that are going on. Um, people that I never in a million years would have apprehension for getting a vaccine. And they all, a lot of them have a lot of pause with this. Again, I think part of it was just because it felt like it was so rapid and not understanding that the way that vaccines get created is a very different machine. Like we literally have machinery <laughs> in place uh, to help us um, crank through clinical trials um, as it pertains to vaccines. So it wasn't like we were starting from, from scratch. And the lead investigators um, for the vaccines, um, in particular, I'm thinking about Dr. Kizzy Corbett, who works at NIH, um, has been working on this particular group of uh, uh, viruses for a while. So it was really taking information that has already been elucidated and information and data and research that has already been completed and now sort of moving all hands on deck to look at this virus. I mean, it really was a situation where all of the investigators around the world paused everything that was going on and now it's all hands on deck. We've got to get this pandemic under control. And so when you have that much attention and so many resources being poured into trying to solve one problem, guess what? Things can get done. And, and you know, this is probably you know, it boded well for the future of medicine, because I think what we've also been able to do is step over some of the ridiculous, bureaucratic, unnecessary things that were in place and take a step. 
I mean, I, I, I think it, it, it seems crazy that it took a pandemic of this type to make the world stop and say, you know, was it really necessary for us to do that same test 15 times when we had the same results after the fifth time? Or was it really necessary to buy all brand new Petri dishes 12 times when we bought Petri dishes four times? I mean, a lot of this and a lot of the stagnation in you know, medical innovation has been really built in bureaucratic waste, has it not? Right. No, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, there is a lot of redundancy that's built into the system. And I would say that for the most part, a lot of that is necessary to make sure that, you know, we're putting things out there that are safe and well studied. Um, but I think that for this particular issue, it was because we had so many different facets, um, you know, that's revved, revved up um, to try to um, come to a solution for this problem that we were able to get past, you know, some of those redundancies and get past, you know, some of those barriers that really tend to slow down the process um, to get to where we are today. And it's not to say that it's all, that it's all figured out. You know, when I look at, when we look at all the COVID vaccines that um, have gotten through um, critical studies, so phase three studies, um, and the FDA, and have provided the FDA with adequate data to help us understand the safety, we have to understand that there's still some questions out there that haven't yet been answered. We're still studying. But what we know about the vaccines that we have access to is one, do they seem to work? And the answer is a resounding yes. They, you know, it stimulates a good immune response. People are making antibodies. And when you take those antibodies and see if it can kill the virus, check, it works. And two, in this short period of time, you know, within a year or so, we know that it looks pretty safe, that people are, you know, experiencing what you would anticipate with any vaccine, which is an immune response, um, you know, with sometimes a little bit of fever, some muscle aches some pain. Even with me being a part of the clinical trial, I had a couple of hives that were in the area where the injection took place. I took a little Benadryl and I was fine. And after my second um, dose, it was completely fine. And I was unblinded in the study. So I found out that I did actually receive the real vaccine back in September. Um, so that's very comforting to me. Um, so I'm now about three, four months into this and I'm feeling great and um, am you know, really happy that I had an opportunity um, to help gain some understanding and gain experience and you know, sort of be able to approach this situation and these conversations with my family and friends from a slightly different angle that I am not asking or recommending that you do something that I wouldn't do for myself. And uh, do you know if your body has already now started producing the proper amount of antibody based mm -hmm. on the vaccine? So that's um, one of the things that I'm sure that the study investigators are looking at. I don't have that data myself um, at this point, um, but I will tell you that I am around a lot of sick people. I'm still around in the hospital, like in contact with a lot of people, and I have yet had anything that remotely looks like COVID symptoms. So that much I will say. <laughs> taking the antibody test yourself either, right? There are, then there are some opportunities to get antibody tested, and that's one of the things that I've been thinking about doing. <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you said that, you know, again, this is, this is all hands on decks, you know, utilizing techniques and information that heretofore we would, didn't really have access to. I know that AI has played a large role in this, and we have not had the breadth of AI technology that we have today to be able to, and I'm talking about artificial intelligence, well as we were 
tune in, but now we can literally through artificial intelligence run, you know, you you have 75,000 real participants, AI can extrapolate and do a computer model that could be as big as a million participants, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, you know, it's the fact that we are really taking advantage of a lot of these technological advances. Again, you know, thinking about all hands on deck is not just the human hands. It's also using the technology that we have at our disposal um, to help us, um, you know, get to a point where we have tangible tools to help us try to get a handle of this um, of this virus. Um, so in addition to helping with, you know, vaccine development, these tools have been very important to help us model where the hotspots are going to be. Um, so from strategy, um, from a government standpoint, that's maybe where resources need to be allocated to make sure that we can um, do contact tracing and that we can make sure that the folks that are there that are doing the testing and that the hospitals have the resources and the support that they need to. So um, all of these things have been very important. Can you explain a little bit about how the vaccine was made? This is a different type of vaccine. The two that are out there right now, the Moderna one and I guess the Pfizer one, are different than vaccines of olden days or of yesterday. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. And you know, and this kind of goes back to one of your original questions of what might be fueling some of the distrust, you know, surrounding this vaccine. Yes, this is a very different approach. Um, it's been um, an approach that's been studied for several years. Um, but now we're seeing it play out in real, real health. And so what's different about this is that in, whereas traditional vaccines are usually a piece of the actual virus or a weakened version of that virus that we inject into individuals um, to get the immune system to stimulate a response, this is a tiny piece of genetic code. And that, that, that stimulates angst in people. They said, what do you mean that you're injecting genetic information in me? Is this going to take over my body's DNA? And the answer is no. Um, you know, what we're injecting is a tiny piece of something called messenger RNA. So it's not DNA. This is not going to interrupt the blueprint of your body. We understand that DNA is kind of the blueprint. Um, messenger RNA, um, and I'm going to borrow an analogy from one of my good colleagues at Emory University, is more in lines of like a little small contractor. So if you have a blueprint of the house, then you bring in the subcontractors, right, to look at that blueprint and sort of bring what's on that piece of paper to life. So the blueprint may say, I'm gonna have three bedrooms and two baths and a frog. Well, the mRNA comes in and says, well, in this kitchen, I wanna have these type of cabinets and I wanna have a waterfall granite countertop. Um, it sort of helps to interpret what's on that blueprint. So what is being injected is this little piece of messenger RNA that comes into your body and tells it to start making this one little piece of the COVID, of the COVID um, virus. Um, and so it's making this something, something called a spike protein. So it's almost like this little spiky hat. And that's the thing that helps the virus to get inside cells. So now this mRNA tells the body to make, just make that one little piece of protein. So the body stops making that. The immune system starts making that little protein, but then the messenger RNA goes away. So it is no longer at risk of altering what your, what your DNA does. It just tells the body, start making that little spike protein. It goes away. And so then your body, your immune system starts making these spike proteins, but then it looks up and says, well, why am I doing this? I don't need spike proteins. There's no place in the body where we need spike proteins. And so that's when your immune system wakes up and says, okay, guys, we need to get rid of this. 
And as we're getting rid of it, I want you memory B cells to remember it. And so that if we see it again, you're gonna be prepared to make these antibodies to get rid of it. I don't want this here. And so that's really kind of how this vaccine works. So it's a tiny piece of genetic code that tells your body to make something, but then it goes away. So it's not altering your DNA. Big brother is not trying to implant something in your body to be able to control you. Um, and this is very different than our traditional vaccines where often we're exposing people to sort of a weakened version of that, of that virus, or we're actually taking a protein itself and injecting it into your body. Wow. And so now how effective is this? Is this, I've heard numbers 90, 95, 94, 93. How effective is this? And are both of the vaccines out there the same effectiveness? So they're all, they're very similar. So the, there's a vaccine. Uh, so the vaccines that have been approved by the FDA so far are the ones with the clinical trial that I've been involved with, Moderna, and then the other trial, Pfizer. And both of them um, are showing very strong efficacy rates. So along the order of 94, 95%, you know, after the first injection, so even with one vaccine, there seems to be a really robust immune response. Um, so maybe like a 50 to 60% efficacy. Um, you know, this is much better than how we do with our flu vaccine. Get your flu vaccine too, please. <laughs> but much better than typical the flu vaccine. Um, and uh, when after the second shot, it raises to you know almost 95%. So this is something that's very robust. And these are the types of vaccines. I mean, I will go on the record. This is the type of vaccine that if enough people get it, we can get rid of COVID. <laughs> it's one of those things. It could eliminate disease. I mean, this is like you know with smallpox. You know things that we don't see in the community anymore. Um, and the MMR vaccine, there's a reason why we've done such a good job of stamping a lot of this out of the community and it's with vaccination. Vaccinations saves lives. And you did say, get your, get your flu shot anyway too, so you can do both simultaneously or you don't wanna do them on the same day? No, you don't wanna do it on the same day. And this is actually a very important point. Um, we really don't want to get the flu vaccine within two weeks of having the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, so you do want to sort of plan accordingly. So if you have access, if you haven't gotten your flu shot and uh, go ahead and do it now. <laughs> um, and then that way, by the time um, you're eligible or you have access to getting the COVID-19 vaccination, you should be good to go. All right. Look, I, you know, I'm, I hit a point where I got a vaccine. I got to do a, a, a ad buy. You know, I have to pay my bills. So let me take a little bit of a break. And then let's come back and talk a little bit more about this. I want to make sure people at home recognize the fact that it's now time to go out and try to seek out and get, make an appointment. I've been trying to do so. I'm in Florida and it's a nightmare down here, but I'm not going to stop until I get one. So let me take a little break. Uh, Pace and Will will be back right after this. And we are joined right now today with Dr. Keisha Gibson, who is a pediatric nephrologist. Um, at the University of North Carolina and the Vice Chair of Diversity and Inclusion at the North Carolina Department of Medicine, North Carolina University Department of Medicine, and has been, you know, a part of a COVID-19 vaccine clinical trial, and also is out here right now trying her best to dispel some of the distrust involved in getting a vaccine. And I'm so happy and thankful that you're here with us today. I'm going to take a little break. We'll be back right after this with more of Dr. Keisha Gibson. We'll be back right after this. Well, hey guys, thanks again so much for tuning in to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel, where we're joined today by Dr. Keisha Gibson, who has been trying her best to help us dispel some of the myths around the COVID-19 vaccine. Thank you so much, Dr. for being part of the show today. Oh, thank you. I'm, 
I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. No, absolutely. We need you out here right now doing exactly what you're doing. That's helping people understand, you know, the viability of the vaccine and the fact that they should go out and seek out and try to get it. Let's talk a little bit about this. Now, if a person takes the vaccine, you could still possibly get COVID. Absolutely. There's no 100% guarantee. So the vaccine is just one very important tool in the armamentarium. It does not mean that we can get by with now having massive house parties at our in our homes. You know, we should still be making sure that we're wearing a mask anytime that we're outside of our immediate um, family bubbles. It should mean that you also are trying to be thoughtful about maintaining a safe distance of six feet. So we should remain socially distant. We still need all those things. Um, and the other thing to understand about the vaccine that we don't fully understand right now is that if you're vaccinated, listen, you're vaccinated, you may have a great immune response, you may be protected. It doesn't necessarily mean that you can't still be a carrier. So you can still transmit COVID-19 to somebody else, even if you're vaccinated and even if you've had a great, you have a good antibody response. And I also heard that though you might get COVID, it'll be a less virulent form. Is that right? That is definitely that is definitely um, what the data was uh, would suggest for us. And honestly, it's the same thing that I expect for um, my patients that go to get the flu vaccine. Um, we understand that flu vaccine from year to year has variable um, efficacy, but having any protection whatsoever is very important. It can mean the difference between you staying at home and feeling a little yucky for a couple of days on your couch versus in the hospital on a ventilator with life-threatening pneumonia. Um, and so um, it's, all, it's, worth, it's worth, that, um, worth that effort to protect yourself. And it's not instantaneous. You don't take the shot, even take the second shot, and all of a sudden you are completely immune to it, like somebody said. Uh, but it, it is, it's more like you take the second shot and over a course of a couple of weeks, that's when your immunity builds? No, absolutely. It takes time for your immune system to actually mount that full response. Now, you may start to feel the effects of the um, vaccine right away. Uh, you know, one of the things I really encourage people to do is to be very transparent about their experience after they've had the vaccine, because we don't want people walking in thinking that, okay, you're going to get the vaccine and feel nothing, no symptoms whatsoever, because then they're taken aback when they get home and they feel a little bit achy or they're running a low grade temperature or you know, they um, are just feeling just sort of wiped out in energy. And then they have the worry that, oh my goodness, my doctor has given me COVID-19 with this vaccine. No, that is not what's happening. What you're experiencing is your immune system responding to that vaccine. That's how your body fights off infections. Um, and so that same mechanism that gets sort of revved up when, you, um, when you're infected, it's the same system that gets revved up when it's trying to mount a response to a vaccine. Now, I guess there is another one on its way, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that seems to be a one-shot vaccine. And then I'm told that there's what, plus 30 plus other vaccines that are waiting right now in the wings to get USDA, US uh, FDA approval? No, absolutely. Again, you know, this whole effort to try to find um, a treatment or prevent uh, some preventative tool for COVID-19 has been an all hands on deck approach. And I'm personally very excited um, about the idea of a vaccine that could be sort of a one-time one -time dosing. I think that could be a, a major game changer. Um, because as you can imagine, the logistics of trying to 
make sure that you get everybody in for those second shots and the, you know, and the, the, the ability to sort of extend the supply of all you have to do is give one vaccine, um, extending access um, to individuals. So you can see how that may really help us get more vaccine in arms and complete it. Um, you can... <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, now, do you think majority of the problems that we're having right now of getting more vaccines in arms is more of an administrative issue than the actual vaccines themselves? I mean, I, I'm here in Florida, and I can tell you, it's a nightmare down here. I mean, yeah. uh, you, you, I'm in the Miami area. I've called every single number that there is that even promotes itself as being a number for the vaccine, and I'm telling you, 99% of them don't even answer the phone. Um, and the 1% that does puts me on a cold. And I, I got through to a local hospital down here who changed the whole uh, dissemination criteria to me. I got on the phone with the hospital said, we're only giving it to 75-year-olds and older. And I'm like, 75? I thought it was 65. And I, I mean, I turned 65 this year, but I'm short of 65, so I can't even go on a list. Yeah, it's, it's very frustrating. And to be honest with you, there are issues at each level. Um, so there are a lot of states that haven't yet received the supply that they've been promised. So that's one issue. Yes, um, their administrative tape can be a bit of an issue, but I really think the largest issue issue is really resources. You've got to have people. You have to have people, nurses, medical staff, people that are there and able to get these shots in arms. You know, our medical community is extremely stretched. So we need these folks here to actually do the vaccine. But we also need them in the hospital to take care of all of these sick patients. But I, um, and, and I'm not, again, this is not an aspersion, but I'm saying I, I recently, about a year and a half ago, I uh, was headed to India and I had to have um, hepatitis A shot. And um, I went to CVS, to a local, you know, pharmacy department uh, store, and that pharmacist was able to inject. Why are we not working more closely with? You know, all of these varied, you know, pharmaceutical chains across the country to let them distribute. They have, you know, you've got pharmacists behind every counter that could literally have a line of 20 out the door. 100%. I, I, I think you're spot on. And I, I, I'm optimistic that there are efforts to pull on these additional resources. Um, you know, why it hasn't happened is anybody's guess. Um, but I am optimistic um, that there, there's a newer, there's an energy, a new energy. We have a different people, a different group of people that are coming in to help sort of lead um, these efforts. Um, I think that now that we do, we have the vaccine, um, we have sort of renewed um, efforts, new players coming to the table to help us lead um, through this effort. I'm optimistic that we're going to see those things um, mobilized. But you're exactly right. We have to think broadly and pull on all of our resources. Sure. I mean, you just answered the question I was going to ask. Do, are you more optimistic looking at this, you know, regime change? And, and I mean, let's be honest. I mean, we change out, you know, from a group of people who, you know, sat around and had the audacity to talk about putting bleach in people's body um, to people who actually understand science. Yeah. And, and to be, and to be fair, you know, there were, there were some good leaders that were, that were there, but, um, Barriers have to be removed on certain levels in order for people to do their jobs. Right. Um, and so I'm, I'm very optimistic that we're going to see a little bit of a different energy um, and different strategy um, moving forward. It's clear that we have to do something. We have 
400,000 Americans that we've lost in this pandemic. I mean, that is um, a number that I can't even attach an adjective to. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's so staggering, but then we hear about things like the variant now. Now that is, you know, and I think what people need to understand, maybe you can explain a little bit about this, all viruses mutate. That is the nature of a virus. It's trying to survive. So it's going to mutate and try to reach its strongest level that it can. Unfortunately for us humans, that's what we don't want it to do, but it's doing so. And one question, are the vaccines that have already been in the pipeline, will they be just as efficacious against this new variant or will we have to start all over again? Or will these same ones work as proficiently with the new variant as they work with the old variant? Uh, can you address that a little bit? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Um, right now, um, we most of the data that we have to answer that question is based upon modeling. And based upon those models, we're very optimistic that the vaccines will still work. Again, you know, a lot of these vaccines are directed against this little spike protein. And so as long as that's present, there's a good chance these vaccines are going to work. Um, viruses want to survive just like any other living organisms out there. And so, as you've already stated, they mutate. Um, this vaccine has been mutating. You know, I think that we're, that we're a lot more aware um, of these variants and you're hearing a lot more about some of these mutations in particular because they appear to be a little more what we call virulent, meaning that they're infecting people a lot easier um, and is more easily spread. And so we're definitely hearing a lot more about them. Um, but it is something that viruses do constantly. Um, and so at this point in time, um, we're still very optimistic that the vaccines that have been approved will still work. Um, I think that it's important for people to understand that even when we have this optimism at the, at the beginning, we have to continue to study. <clears throat> and so all of these vaccines that we are utilizing, we are continuing to study them. We're continuing to um, gather data um, because we want to know what happens a year out. Like, do we, will we have to take these vaccines again? How long after we've had the vaccine, will these antibodies last? Will you have the effect? Um, There's some data that suggests that it might protect us for a year, but guess what? We still need to collect the real data behind those models. And at least a year will shut it down enough that we can try to get prepared for the next version, right? Exactly right, exactly and, right. And it doesn't necessarily have to be another version of COVID. It could be an entirely different type of flu kind of virus, right? Absolutely. You know, um, 10 years ago, it was H1N1. Um, you know, it's the swine flu. And now when you go to get your flu shots, it's a recombinant vaccine um, that you're getting is more than one strain um, that you're getting vaccinated um, against. Um, and so moving forward, my hope is that we've learned some valuable lessons from this and that we employ um, whatever needs to be in place to help us catch these new virus, these new viruses and these new strains that can wreak havoc and have the potential to cause pandemics and snuff it out at the very beginning. Um. Well, you know, Doc, now, I, and I'm not trying to be a doomsday sayer, please. I'm not, I'm just asking questions from an education standpoint to make sure that people get information. But in a couple of weeks ago, I was hearing a story out of Africa of the doctor who had discovered Ebola has come across now a new virus that he wasn't even aware was there as practices and it's in this kind of Ebola kind of world. And he made a direct statement on CNN saying that we just all should pray that this doesn't get out. 
this is something that we are faced with. I, I think maybe you could, you could explain it to my viewers. Viruses outnumber human beings, I bet, on this planet, do they not? In okay. types of species and different types of them. I, I, I also uh, watched this about, mm, about a year ago. I remember reading a story, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, about some doctors who had looked at an ice core that was a million years old. And the reason why they looked at the ice core a million years old is because this glacier had melted down to that spot. And they literally found a virus that was associated with, um, uh, uh, a disease that's almost like a sexually transmitted disease. But they found this virus that was a million-year-old version of the one that we have today. So that million-year-old version of it that was from an ice core that had melted down to that spot means that that ice probably had more of that virus in it. And the piece that wasn't a core just evaporated up into the atmosphere. That virus is probably out there. And how does mankind look ahead and anticipate how to deal with some of this that's being released because of global warming? Wow, that is such uh, such a good question. Um, you know, I don't know if I have, I don't have the answer for you. All I can say is that it's going to be important for us to make sure that we don't forget the path that we've already traveled and that we don't forget the mistakes um, that we've had. Um, you know, it's interesting, you bring up Africa and you notice that we don't talk a lot about what's happening with COVID in Africa. And there's a reason for that um, because <laughs> I think, I, I think, well, it's interesting. I think that part of the reason why it is not as much of a discussion is that people fail to appreciate um, just how much of a system that the public health workers in Africa have for helping to control situations like this. I mean, they've gotten it down to a science. When it comes to contact tracing, they're going to these remote villages. They're going into the homes. They are providing all of the um, appropriate protective equipment you know, for um, diseases where there is prophylactic treatment, they're getting it out to people. Um, but we don't really talk about how well Africans, um, how, how well Africans do this. And, you know, you can, there are many reasons why that probably is. I mean, there's a lot of bias um, that, that we deal with. Um, but, it's, but, it's, but it's a fact. Um, is the COVID-19 virus as crazy in Africa as it is here in North America? does not seem to be as widespread. You know, there's, uh, you know, I think you will hear some opinions that is because, well, they're just not accounting for the viruses and all the deaths that are there from it. And I don't think it's that. Um, there are some countries, um, in particular Senegal, that have really done a phenomenal job and keeping this data and trace and doing contact tracing and really following things. And they, you know, and the government is very activated in regards to enforcing things like, you know, wearing masks. Um, and so with that type of leadership response, now granted, Senegal is a lot smaller than the United States, so we do understand that. Um, but I do think that there have been a lot of um, effective and successful interventions um, that have been made to really keep their numbers and their mortality um, from COVID-19 very low. And that seems to be the same pretty much in all over the world, except for some spots in Western Europe. I mean, when you look at uh, Korea, Singapore, 
New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> literally, literally, when they lock it down, they lock it down. Right. And everybody recognizes that, you know, I mean, we are so, I, I think, just, I, I don't want to. No, it's unfortunate. A lot of the interventions that we have at our disposal that are easy to implement have been very highly politicized. Um, you know, and as a medical professional myself, it is very hard for me to watch the news and to hear um, the discord and just how adamant people are about not wearing a mask because it's taking away civil liberties. Um, it's, it's painful. But, it, it's but so those, painful. Same people, those same people are not out there screaming, I don't want to wear a seatbelt. Correct. I mean, what, did your civil liberties go out the door when you put on a seatbelt? No. You know, did your civil liberties go out the door when we told you don't smoke in the restaurant sitting beside somebody else? No. Uh, it just seems so self-serving and self-centered. And, you know, uh, you know, we have this, this feeling in our society that we have a right to do whatever we damn well choose to do, no matter how it impacts the person next to you. And I, I, I think that that's more of an American issue than it is anywhere else in the world. That's why our numbers are so high. Yeah, it's a missed opportunity. I mean, just the simple act of wearing a mask, you know, really should be looked at, looked upon as being a patriotic act. You know, that is something that we can look at to unite all of us. Um, but instead, it's been politicized in a very different way. And it's very unfortunate. And maybe this new regime will help to at least change that. I think uh, that the, the president-elect has suggested that he's going to make it mandatory, at least in federal buildings and places like that, mask wearing for the next 100 days. Um, and also now I just, I guess, heard something about him stepping up the efforts for dissemination of the vaccine over the next 100 days also, right? Yes, yes. Um, it's going to be a big charge, a big task, because we are very much behind um, the um, sort of the, the, the speed of which, you know, we're planning to get things out, right? Um, so it's going to take a lot to catch up and then to surpass, but I think we can do it. Um, it's <laughs> No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Is, is there a general place that people can go? Is there a national platform that people can reach out to and say, I live in this state. Where do I go to get my vaccine? That is so needed. Um, I'm not aware of, um, of a national um, hotline for people to call into. Right now, the dissemination of vaccine is very state dependent. Um, and so honestly, relying on your state and your county um, health departments to look for that information is is, is the best route for now. Um, it'll be interesting to see if, um, if the coordination looks a little different um, over the next 100 days. And again, not to be a doomsday sayer, but um, you know, if you had the crystal ball, do you think we're gonna be faced with another type of vac or another type of virus like this emerging in the next couple of years? I think it's inevitable. It's inevitable. We're going to, there are going to be new viruses. Um, the question is, are we going to learn from our previous mistakes and do a much better job of containing and controlling and protecting our people? That's the real question. Um, you know, I think even um, if I remember correctly, um, President Obama gave a speech specifically um, stating that we have to be prepared um, for another pandemic that could really affect the world that is all, you know, all accounting for all things, we should have the expectation that there's going to be a new virus. So um, again, I, it's coming, it's gonna come again. The question is, what are we gonna do to prepare ourselves to make sure that we can handle it? So, and 
I guess the one thing we should do is check our own individual attitudes and ensure that we do the most we can. So what would you suggest the most we can do even right now? I'm waiting for the vaccine, haven't gotten it. So what's the best thing I can do right now to keep and protect myself? And I, what I, just so you know, I am as hunkered down as hunkered down can be. I barely ever leave my apartment. And when I do, I wear a mask. Depending on if I think I'm going to be touching a lot of things, I wear gloves. Um, if I think that there's going to be more than one person come within six feet of me or walk past me, I wear goggle types of glasses. Um, I'm anticipating for myself in the next month or so, I may have to get on an airplane. And I've been thinking about trying to, you know, I'm creating my, <laughs> you know, completely contained, you know, hyperbaric. I, I'm covering myself with everything I can possibly do if I'm going to get on an airplane. But what else can I do? And I do wash my hands even in my here alone in my own apartment. I wash my hands, not from an OCD standpoint, but I'm, I'm washing the three times a day. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those moments where I don't think that OCD could be attached to those behaviors. I don't think that, you know, that people should look at that as being extreme. I think that that is you utilizing the tools and what you have to protect yourself. And we should all do that. You know, I have my goggles here. My mask is right here. Hand sanitizer here. <laughs> it was very interesting. Yesterday I went, uh, I and my wife both had a doctor's appointment yesterday. I was seeking out a new general practitioner and I went to his, his office and I was so happy with the fact that, you know, first off it's appointment only. And so we were the only two in the office at the same time with his staff of three. We were behind the glass when we first entered, we filled out our papers. His entire staff had on mask and I did my whole doctor's visit the entire time until he had to put a thing in my mouth, my mask on. So I, you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that, there are doctors that are leading the way by example like that. Yeah, we're, we're doing our best. Um, there's a lot of colleagues um, that I've had and others have had around the country that have really gotten sick um, from COVID. We've lost um, members of our community um, that are on the front lines, um, again, trying to protect, protect the general community. And, you know, it's these simple acts of kindness, putting on a mask, maintaining social distance, you know, those simple acts that could show our appreciation um, I think that there are a lot of, I've had um, colleagues and friends that have been very upset seeing, you know, all of the videos and um, reading cards of appreciation and, you know, all these areas um, um, identifying healthcare workers as heroes, but then you won't put on a mask. And right. so it just, it, it just, it makes it kind of a moot point. Don't tell me you appreciate me, but then you won't do these simple things to protect me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. Thank you so much, Doctor. And thank you, Dr. Keisha Gibson, for being here and being a part of the show. You know, just for those who, you know, I introduced you, you're a nephrologist, which is the study of, of kidneys. Is that right? That's right. Kidney diseases. Mm -hmm. kidney diseases. So not only do you work on kidney disease, but you work on viruses like COVID. Well, uh, everybody in the healthcare field <laughs> right now is working around with COVID, with um, COVID viruses. You know, on a daily basis, I think about kidneys and kidneys and little people. Um, but um, this has impacted my patients. It impacts their families. Um, it impacts my colleagues. I'm looking at my colleagues that are working in the COVID units. Um, and every week I turn around, we're having to open up a different COVID unit. Um, and they're exhausted, absolutely exhausted. So, um, you know, despite, um, you know, the grim news that we're hearing, we're losing way too many of our family and friends um, to this pandemic. Um, I hope that people 
um, can find some inspiration and some optimism and hope that we have some new tools. Um, having a vaccine is a game changer, but it's not gonna do a darn thing if people don't get it in their arms. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Well said, and I'm hoping that people tune in to this edition of Free Thinking with Montana. You hear right from the doctor's mouth, Dr. Keisha Gibson. Thank you so much. And again, anytime you ever want to come back, you know, I'd love to talk about nephrologists and nephrology. So anytime you ever want to come back, you have a home here. You always Be careful of what you ask for, because I can talk about kidneys all day long. <laughs> and I would listen to you all day long. So thank you so much. My dear. You be well, stay safe. Hope your family stays safe. Kiss your loved ones. And uh, thank you again for being a part of Free Thinking with Montel today. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please send us your comments.